As we prepare to land the proverbial airplane today, first of all, I'll give you guys a quick updates. As you guys know, I was gone last Sunday, and I appreciate Jim filling in. Wasn't that great? I was telling them I watched half of it on my way home from Sydney um, on Facebook. Not that I'm condoning that type of behavior, but I did it, so, and I'm not ashamed. And, uh, and then I got to watch the other half later in the week, and it was really good. And uh, Jim said something in there very profound, which shocks Paul to hear those types of words. Paul, Paul's blown away by that. But, you know, we're, we're finishing this series today. We're landing the proverbial airplane, going into the next one. And the statement he made in there, which I haven't told him what it was yet, he has no idea, is literally word for word what the Holy Spirit put in my heart about two and a half months ago of where we were going next. And he doesn't have any idea. So when he made that statement, it just jumped off the screen to me. And he, he said, I told him that. I said, man, you said something there. I'm like, right in line. It's really good. He's like, well, what did I say? I'm like, got to show up to find out. Unfortunately for him, he is going to be gone. He's going to be out of town for a couple of weeks. So it's what happens when you take a vacation. Shame on you. But anyway, the uh, pastor's wife there is doing much better. She's home and all of that. We appreciate that. Also, I want to give you guys another update. Um, as you guys know, I've talked about this. I am flying out to Salt Lake City Wednesday. I'm going to be gone for basically the whole week. Um, we're doing some ministry there in the Salt Lake area, evangelizing Mormons. I'm helping lead a team. Um, they bring in a group of people. And uh, the irony is we're going to go door knock. Um, Give them a little taste of their own medicine. It's gonna, I'm, I'm hoping, I don't want this to happen because I do want to have the conversation, but what I want to see happen is the lights are on and you knock on the door and then all the lights turn off. You guys know what I'm saying? Like, that would just make my day. Um, I may or may not, have I told you guys a story about the Jehovah's Witnesses that came around when I was a kid? We lived in this big two-story house that we rented when I was growing up, and these guys were in our neighborhood multiple weeks, and my mom, when they would come around, she'd like lay low. All the lights in the house are off. I'm, and I'm talking like army crawl through, so you couldn't see through the windows, because we had one of those front porches, the big front porch, and it had the swing and all that. So, so there were big windows there you could see, and so she didn't want to talk to them. And I don't know at this point if we were going to church yet, I don't remember this, but anyway, me being the child that I was, and I had to have been young, probably seven, eight, I don't even know. Um, I had been upstairs in my bedroom. My mom was cooking supper. There's a knock on the door. Well, my mom's on the other side of the table. She couldn't hear it. I heard it. So I go down there and answer, and it's the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they've got their paperwork and all of this stuff, and, and they're like, is your mom home? And I said, yeah, she's cooking supper. I said, you know, who are you? She's like, oh, we're here to talk about God and, you know, going to their whole spiel. And I'm like, oh, well, come on in. Why don't you guys have supper with us? I just got ungrounded last week. So... Anyway, but it was interesting. So I'm excited to get out there, uh, help with this, and to kind of see this is something the Lord put on my heart, you know, when they first started talking to me about it, so I really felt like I needed to go. So I'm going to go. But there's a reason for that, and it does tie into what we're talking about. And as we finish this up, I'll explain why. So I'm going to give you guys details about that trip when I return about what's going on there and and, uh, some specificities. But, you know, we've been in this series for a while now called The Identity Crisis, and um, I think it has never been more true than it has in the last probably couple of years. Uh, as I talk to different ministers around the country, uh, around the world even, I mean, you know, uh, we're fortunate enough that we have some connections with people and things like that. Hearing the things that are going on, and even in what you would consider good Christian families and good Christian denominations, because, you know, there's just like anything else. There's good groups, there's not so good groups, and then there's bad groups. And most of us fall into the kind of the lethargic group where it's like, Yes, we're born-again believers, but that's where it ends. But we're not really evangelizing, but we're also not living immoral lives. You know, it's just kind of that tweener thing. And what struck me is when we began this whole thing is like, 
when we talk about our identity as a church, who we are in Christ, it's like, what does that even mean? And as we started this whole thing, it was, it was talking about the ideas like, if I ask you, and ask anybody, not you guys, but I'm saying, let's get outside of our four walls, and I would ask somebody, it's like, please define what the church is. The number one answer, I guarantee you, will be a building of which you go to. And, okay, and I'm like, and that's fair, because we have kind of established it that way. But then, what does the church do? In other words, what is its purpose? And again, I would tell you, well, more than likely, and the people I've talked to through the years have I've iterated this, is something that, well, they, they help poor people, they help with kind of things like along those lines. And as I was sitting there initially, and as we were, I was praying about it, you know, it's saying, okay, God, what, what are you trying to convey? It was, the church has lost its way. Because the word church is just a Greek word, ekklesia, which means gathering. But when Jesus used it, he was referencing not a place, but a group. And that group comprised of, of what ultimately would be his body. And in that, it's like, okay, if I say I'm part of the church, what does that mean? And if I am part of the body, what does that mean? In other words, when I call myself born again, I should be able to define that term. When I call myself spirit-filled, I should be able to define that term. And when I say that I am part of the body of Christ, that comes with expectations, or at least it should. Tragically, it, it doesn't often, but it should. And so when we started in this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Well, what were the old things? Well, we were outside of Christ. Now we're part of the body of Christ. And not just part, but I mean, you think about it. When we've read that in Ephesians 1 and 2, that he is the head and that we are the body, the example we look at is, well, what was Jesus' body doing when he was here? And I don't think we can define that very good. And then you get to Romans chapter 8 and verse 6. It says, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The carnal mind is an enmity against God because it's not subject to the law of God. Though If you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. So it's like, okay, well, what does that mean? Because my entire life I was taught that this is basically don't go do immoral things. Don't do bad things. But that's really not what Paul's conveying here. Because if you get into the very next chapter in Romans 9... He's talking about, and 10 and 11 going forward, is the past of Israel. In chapter 10, the present of Israel. In chapter 11, the future of Israel, nation, national Israel, God's chosen people. And in chapter 9, it's, the past is how they have rejected God's word, rejected the prophets, rejected the covenant. Even when God was trying to get their attention, they rejected it. When it's talking about being carnally minded, it is literally talking about thinking contrary to the ways of God. So if we are the body of Christ, created new, becoming in his image, his imager, his representative, then how should we think? We should think spiritually. That means no matter what is going on around us in this world, the way we respond is in a spiritual way. So when we are wronged by somebody, how should we respond? Not in kind. Imagine, if you will, somebody came and stole money from you. And you know it. What should your response be? It's just money. There's accountability. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we just could turn a blind eye to it. But do we 
form up into this ball of rage where we want to get even. Or let's just say they attack your family or, or something else like that. They, they steal your car or they hit your car. Or whatever. How do we respond is indicative of how we are thinking. See, that's the difference. When you've heard this term, you hear it all the time. You're hearing it a lot in the culture right now. Is that, well, you're a Christian. You shouldn't respond that way. You shouldn't act that way. It always has something to do with what they want. But when we really look at this, it's like we're car- we're, if we're carnally minded, then we are thinking death. And if we're spiritually minded, we're thinking life and peace. And this, this implies that anytime we're having anxiety, anytime we're stressing out about something that's going on in this world, we're not being spiritually minded. And that's not a condemnation. That means we need to fix it, church. We need to get better about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll jump down to verse 3. It says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God. And they pull down strongholds and they cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It brings every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. This is indicative, again, of what we're talking about. Are we in a battle? Every single day. We're engaged in spiritual warfare, whether we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Because spiritual warfare is going around us all the time, and we ignore it most of the time. We're not aware of our surroundings. We're not even aware when we're being attacked because we are not thinking spiritually. But when you begin to think spiritually, you begin to get aware of your surroundings and what's going on. And when you see somebody responding in a certain way or acting in a certain way, you realize it's not them. It's a spiritual side influencing them. And so when we look at this, how do we respond? spiritually. Ephesians 6 verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God, you should be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You've got to be able to stand against it. Does it mean, uh, what this means is that God has given us every tool that when we are individually attacked, we can withstand it, right? What is our responsibility? Put on the armor. We don't put on the armor, can we withstand it? No, we cannot. We're subject to it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober and vigilant because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So what's he talking about? Our adversary, the one that we're against. You notice he didn't say your neighbor or the guy that wronged you at some point. He said your adversary the devil. That means we have one and only one. It is the spiritual world. It is the enemy. He's walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be on the menu. He's not looking for Christians to devour. He's looking for people to devour. The difference between a born-again believer and an unborn-again person is the fact that a Christian, a born-again Christian, has the ability and responsibility to deal with this. And oftentimes we don't. We succumb to it. We whine about it. We're like, oh, God, why me? I'm a good person. Why are bad things happening to me? It's because you allowed it. It's being frank. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, which says, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, how much authority was given to Jesus? All. Who was it given by? The Father. How did Jesus get it? He overcame death. Therefore, a born-again believer is no longer subject to death. In that sense, we don't fear it because it doesn't control. Should somebody who is not a born-again believer, not in covenant with God, fear death? Absolutely. But should you? Absolutely not. And with that, he says, you go and you make disciples. What commandment did he give? Go and make disciples. How are we doing? We're not doing well. There are pockets of people around the world that go and make disciples. And you know where they primarily dwell? Is in foreign nations in which Christianity is essentially illegal. 
More disciples are made in those nations than anywhere else in the world. And when I say that, don't misunderstand me because you know what? We can put on a big event and pack a place out with thousands of people and have them bow their head and close their eyes and raise their hand and recite a prayer. That's not making disciples. People may come to Christ in those events. Don't misunderstand me. That's not making disciples. Making a disciple is you going intentionally, bringing them along the journey with you. We don't do that because we don't have time for it. We've got other things. I don't have time. I'm, I've got too much going on. It says to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded. How are we doing with that? Not great. Not great. You see... The first disciple that you will ever have or likely have in your, your, in your youth, I guess, in your young married life are your children. Your children are the first disciples you get to make. And sometimes we look back as parents and we're like, oh, man, I didn't do that right. Sometimes we look back like, oh, man, why were you born? But be that as it may, it's like that's the first disciples. And usually we do better with somebody else. But the thing is, is like, we're not even cognizant of the world around us. See, this is what I'm saying, is we are so misguided that we think if we come here and we put in our time, we're, we're accomplishing something. We're not accomplishing anything. This moment, every week, is not for you to feel good. It's not for you to get goosebumps. It is to prepare and enrich and equip you. It's through the teaching of the Word and the moving of the Holy Spirit. We come together, united in heart and purpose, to worship God With one voice, we lift up, we bow our hearts before Him, and now we get to work. It's an Old Testament principle where they would come in and then they would go out. It was something that was expected of them. And yet, for us, we come in, we seat ourselves up at the buffet, and it's like, I'm good for another week, I can get through whatever I've got to get through. That was never the intention. He said, go and make disciples, not converts. Don't go and make church attenders. He said, go and make disciples. And you teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded. And that, my friends, is where we are finishing up today. You see, I read you John 10. It says, the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. And some will try to use this like, oh, look, God wants us to have a more abundant life. Yes, fulfilled in Him, not necessarily in stuff. The stuff can come. The stuff can go. It's stuff, but it's in Him. Who is the thief? It's not what you thought. It's not the devil, so to speak. It was a reference to the Pharisees and their teaching. Their teaching stole Messiah from the nation of Israel. Had at any point in time, they recognized Him for what He was and declared, yes, Jesus of Nazareth, that is Messiah. The nation of Israel would have accepted him in a whole, and they would have received their Messiah, and he would be sitting on the throne of David at that moment. That's what they were expecting. He didn't meet the criteria. They stole that from him. That is why when he rode into Jerusalem, he's in tears. If only you had recognized the time of your coming. The time is now, and now they have to wait. See, things have changed. We as the church have had things stolen from us. And the thing is, is part of it is through teaching and part of it is through misunderstanding. But the number one thing that we've had stolen from us is this principle. Because if we're to teach to observe all the things that he commanded, we have to observe all the things that he has commanded. And when I showed you this, it said that number one, there's three baptisms inside of it. The first one 
is the Holy Spirit baptizes into Christ. And I'm not going to go through all this again. 1 Corinthians 12, talk about that. We are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And then we have water baptism, the one we're familiar with, where a disciple, any disciple, not necessarily a pastor, and you'll see this today, can be anybody. If you are bringing somebody along and you lead them to Christ, why would you not baptize that person? Do you know what qualifications you have to have in order to baptize somebody? You have to be a disciple yourself. That's it. There's no other strings attached. And the last one is Jesus baptizes in the Holy Spirit. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the only thing outside of his death, burial, and resurrection that is found in all four gospels, where John says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I come and baptize with water, but one who comes after I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with power. In Acts chapter 1, we see here the kind of the last words to Jesus. Verse 4 says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And some will associate this, that the giving of the Holy Spirit was the first time that we were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And as I showed you, if we're careful in our reading, we'll realize that that's not even possible. In John chapter 20, verse 19, it says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut and the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad and again... Uh, when they, glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. When he breathed the Holy Spirit on them, they were indwelt with the Spirit. And then he tells them, Go wait for the Spirit. Can't be the same thing. Grammatically, it can't be the same thing. Theologically, it can't be the same thing. But look at the difference. What were they doing when Jesus showed up? They were in a locked room. Why? They were afraid. I'm sure word was getting around. They were afraid. What happens after Acts 2? They were no longer afraid. They stood toe-to-toe with the leaders of that day. They would do anything to stop them from the mission that Jesus had put them on. You see, this is what we call the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is not like a second blessing. It was intended to be a part of the salvation experience. Because it wasn't like we're just saved and we just get out of jail sort of thing. We just avoid hell. No, we were now created as an imager and representative of Jesus on this earth. And if that is true, then we should be doing what he said and what he did. And what did he do? He went and he taught and he preached the kingdom and he healed the sick. He cast out demons. He did all of these things. What do we do? We go to church. We pray. We read our Bibles. Those are all good things. But you notice all of those are about me and not about them. See, if we're to obey and teach them to observe all the things that he has commanded, what was the first thing he commanded them after his resurrection? Go to Jerusalem. I want you to wait until you're endued with power from on high. Did they know how long they'd have to wait? Nope. Did they know exactly what they were waiting for? Probably not. Were they standing around like, okay, we'll know it because you're going to hear some wind and you're going to see some fire and there's going to be a crowd drawn. So that's, that's our clue. There was none of that spoken. In Mark chapter 16, you guys know this, verse 9, now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. 
she went and told those who'd been with him as they mourned and wept. Why were they mourning and weeping? Jesus had died. They were not, you don't mourn and weep for somebody you expect to not be dead. He told them, listen, I'm going to die, but don't worry, three days later I'll be back. Did they believe him? No, not at all. And when they had heard that he was alive and had been uh, seen by her, they did not believe. Why not? Was she confirming the word that had been spoken by Jesus? Absolutely. Should they have believed her? Absolutely. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country, and they went and told it to the rest. But they did not believe them either. Well, now you have two sightings. Maybe it's like a Bigfoot thing. I don't know what's going on. Verse 14, later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. And what did he do? He rebuked their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Why did he get on to them? Their heart was hard. He's not coming back. We thought he was. He thought he was going to make it through. We thought he was going to be the king, but now he's dead. They didn't believe anybody, including him. That rebuke is a strong word. What's he say to them? Verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. If we stop right there, is that enough of a commandment that we should be teaching people to observe? Absolutely. Who is supposed to do this? Who's not supposed to do it would be an easier question. Because there is no limitation. See, the problem we have is when we hear this, what do we think? Yep, that's somebody who's called to that. What world are you going to? We think world, we think the big world, but what about your neighbor? What about your family? What about your friends? What about your circle of influence? What about them? We don't think of it like that. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not will be, believe will be condemned. These signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, I'm going to go out of order and mess you up a little bit. So you ready for this? Did you have coffee this morning, Neil? Okay, good. See, who is the he? Them that believes. Who is that? It's whoever that they had preached the gospel to. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes is baptized and is baptized will be saved who is that that is who had been preached to right no question about it these signs will follow those who believe who are those it's the same people did he say only if i have a special calling on their life and a special anointing no he says those who believe and i was believe put their faith in him and will be taught to commit all the things that he had commanded including the baptism in the spirit These signs will follow those who believe. They will cast out demons. They will speak with tongues. They will take up servants. If they drink anything deadly, it will not hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Did any of that say might? Did any of that say they could do this? Was this an expectation by Jesus given to them to expect on those converts, disciples being made? No question. You see, when we read this, we often like, okay, well, that's cute. Some people do that. It's intended for everybody to do that. There's no special qualification. What's the only thing you need? The same thing Jesus needed, this power to come upon you. See, there's an expectation that we do all of this. When we talked in tongues, I, I, as I went through this, you know, that is a net result of 
the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I think I've got that chart. You can pull that up for me real quick. Let me just show you this real quick just so we're clear. There are five examples in the book of Acts. Acts 2, 8, 9, 10, and 19. And there's a little more in-depth as parts of these. But as we see how the Holy Spirit was given, in two of them it was done corporately. In other words, they were all gathered in a room and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And three times we see it through the laying on of hands. And three times we see as a result, how did they know? Because they heard them speaking in tongues. And two times it doesn't mention tongues, one of which is dealing with Paul. And we know he did. Because he said, I pray in tongues more than you all. So we'll go four out of five. That's not bad. It was a net result. It wasn't the the cause. It was the net result of doing this. And so here's the thing that we have to understand. This isn't our focus. Our focus is to observe all things that Jesus commanded. That we go into all the world and preach the gospel. And those who believe will be saved. And those signs will follow them who believe. At one point, that was you and I. At one point, somebody, it may have been a family member, it may have been a preacher, we don't know, it doesn't matter. It may have been your neighbor, it may have been a co-worker. At some point, somebody preached to you. And you believed. And unfortunately, most of us stop right there. If we go to the next step, where we are now baptized in the Holy Spirit, most of us are not out engaging in these things. We're using it for ourselves. But it wasn't for us. It was for the signs and the wonders following the preaching of the gospel. Look at verse 19. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, He was received up into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God and they went out and they preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. What accompanying signs? Can we at least assume that it's what Mark just wrote here? You see, when Jesus ascended, he sat down. You guys all know what that's talking about. They went out and preached everywhere. As a result of that, the Lord was working with them and confirming the word through them with the accompanying signs. In other words, what they were saying isn't just, listen, this isn't just intellectual. I'll prove it to you. There was a confidence there. There was an expectation there. Why is that? Because they had the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwelling in them. All of it. There was nothing different about them and their ministry than was Jesus and His ministry. I am not saying that we are on par with God. I'm saying that we are God's body, and we've got to get that. But we ignore this step. You see, he commanded them to go in the way. We think that there are people that are gifted and called to these different things, like you might have a healing ministry, you might have a deliverance ministry, you may have this or that. There's none of that spoken. There are gifts and are given as the Spirit wills. But that's not talking about any of this. If we just get this part down... I'd be satisfied. I don't know about you. I'd be perfectly happy. You see, it was everyday people. The 12 were not educated. They were not intelligent. There was nothing special about them. He went around. He picked out 12 guys he liked. That was it. That never changed. Look at Acts chapter 5. The result of all of this. Acts chapter 5 verse 12. It says, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. 
And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing might fall on some of them. And a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, stop. This Peter was hiding in the room in fear of the Jews. Now he is parading himself in front of the Jews. Big difference. Why? He's no longer afraid. He doesn't fear death. He doesn't fear what's going to happen to him. Jesus said to go and preach, so he went and he preached. And the signs followed. Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. So much so that believers were increasingly added every single day to the Lord. And as a result of that and Peter's ambition, and and I guarantee you other people being involved here, that they would just bring sick people out in the streets that maybe if Peter walks by, they may be healed. A multitude gathered from surrounding cities. This is what you call a revival. Is that God is moving in certain areas in that moment because he's got certain people who are being obedient to his command. And as a result, word gets around and they begin to bring in their sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And how many of them were healed? All of them. All of them. You'd never see an example where one of the apostles or anybody in the New Testament made an excuse of why a person didn't get healed. Because all of them got healed. There's an expectation there. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So that's Peter. That's great. We think pretty highly of Peter, don't we? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now let me explain something to you here. First of all, this is Paul speaking. Paul went in there and he's talking about, did he go in there and preach? Did he argue? Yeah, we see it multiple times. He went into the synagogue and argued with them and debated with them and all of that. But what did he say? I didn't come to you with just trying to convince you of something. I'm demonstrating what I'm saying through the power of the Holy Spirit. You guys all see that? But here's the thing. You've got such a drastic difference between Peter and Paul that we often overlook. You see, Peter was what? Fisherman. What qualifications do you have to have to catch fish? None. I've proven that. Right? Any idiot can do it. He wasn't educated. There was argument that he couldn't even read or write. Don't know if that's true. There's arguments made. We know that they weren't highly esteemed because in Acts chapter 2, they're like, wait a minute. Aren't these guys Galileans and we hear them speaking in our own life? Like, in other words, they shouldn't be able to do that. Those guys are idiots. That's the way some of you feel for the other side of the river. But we all agree it's further north. That's the problem, okay? Anyway. But the thing is, is like, there's nothing special about him. But what did he do? He had stood up so boldly. We watched him lift up the man that was born and couldn't walk. We watch in this, uh, this event that through what he's doing, the believers are increasingly added, so much so that people are getting word and they're bringing them out to him, and everybody was healed. 
nothing special about him, not educated. But that's not true with Paul. You see, Paul was a Pharisee trained by Gamaliel. This is an educated man. Smarter than probably you and I could ever hope to be. And he was going against God till he had an encounter with Jesus. And that changed everything. And what does he say here? The educated one. I'm not coming with you with persuasive words. I'm not trying to just show you how smart I am and the wisdom that I've gained through the years. And it was vast. I'm demonstrating the spirit and the power. I dare to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Two polar opposite backgrounds doing the exact same work. What was so special about them? They were chosen by God. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore we must give the more earnest heed the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast. Now that's a reference to the law, okay, the Old Testament commandments that was given through angels. Every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. He's showing an antithesis here. But how was it? It wasn't just the words that were given. Words had been given before. It was the accompanying signs. Look at Acts chapter 6. Verse 1, it says, Now in those days, when the number of disciples were multiplying, now remember, this is just after Acts chapter 5. Okay, we just read out of Acts chapter 5. There was, arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Those are Greek Jewish people. Okay, they had a Greek mindset. Because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So what was happening is distributions were going out, but the widows could not go and get on their own, and they were supposed to be cared for, and it wasn't happening. So they had a complaint. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now who are the twelve? The original twelve apostles, minus Judas, plus Matthias. And so they're saying here, listen, we have things to do. We should not be worrying about the widow. We've got other things we need. We need help. So therefore, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. What business? The serving of the tables, right? Now, what were the qualifications needed for this? What does it take to give food to somebody? Nothing, just go do it. But what did they look for? Seven men, they had to have a good reputation and had to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We, verse 4, will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So in other words, they had a unique calling. We would all agree with that. But they needed help because they can't do everything. This is where the body comes into play. And verse 5, it says, The saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip. Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now that's powerful. The Levite priest, keepers of the temple, were being obedient to the faith. But when did this really start taking off? Well, it happened... When there were people that were being neglected because the apostles couldn't do it all, we need seven men full of the Holy Spirit that we can focus on these other things, but we need help. 
So when they said this, who do they choose? We're going to focus on two. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and a guy named Philip. What qualifications do they have? What seminary did they attend? How smart were they? We don't know any of these answers. What was their background? What did they do for a living? Who was their mom? We don't know. What's their favorite football team? We don't know. We don't know any of this stuff. We know nothing about these guys. We know that they were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. That's all we know. Now, Stephen's unique because jump down to verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Well, that's interesting. He's not one of the twelve. What qualifications did he have? None. What was he full of? Faith and power. He did great wonders among the people. Then there arose some of what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrian, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. What were they disputing about? Doesn't necessarily say. But they couldn't resist him. So obviously whatever argument he was making was uh, working. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard, from, uh, heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Now, you guys know how the rest of the story goes. He is going to get intense persecution. And as they begin to question him about the accusations, which are not true because that's not what he said, he is going to stand up and he is going to go through a little history lesson with all of them. Of all the times that they encountered a move of God of which they rejected, even now. And as a result, what happens? He gets stoned. He's killed as a result of this. And there was a guy standing there watching the whole thing. We call him Paul. Watch this happen. But why did it happen? Was Stephen upset? Please don't kill me. No. He didn't fear death. You see it. He looks up in the heaven. He sees Jesus standing there. He's ready to go. Doesn't matter. What got him to this point is that he was full of faith and power, and he did great wonders and signs among the people. Do you know what I'd love to be hated for? Not my sarcasm. That's what it's for now. I'd love to be hated Because I'm doing such incredible things for God that people don't know how to react to it. And so they're going to make accusations against me. Even to the point of death. As a result of this whole event, things begin to shift. Look at Acts chapter 11. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Now stop. What did it just say here? As a result of all the persecution that was going on, they spread out. Did they go into hiding? No. What did they do? They preached the word. It says to no one but the Jews only. That's who their focus was. That's what they believed at that point in time is what they had to do. Because it was the Jewish Messiah. Everywhere they went, they preached. 
Verse 20, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come up to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So all they're doing is preaching the gospel. The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Who's Barnabas? What qualifications does he have? What seminary did he attend? What special gifting from God did he have? I don't know either. When he came, he had seen the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. We just saw his qualifications, didn't we? Full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. It's a little sidebar thing there. What was his qualifications? We don't know. Probably didn't have any. We don't even know if he could read. We don't know anything about the man. What about Stephen? We don't know anything about the man. And when persecution got so hot in Jerusalem that people began to spread out, what did they do? Not go into hiding. You see, when things get rough here, what do we do? We get quiet. When things got rough there, what do they do? They get louder. That's what I'm saying is that in parts of the world where people face intense persecution as a result of their faith, the church is growing at a staggering state. And here in America, we are stagnating at a staggering state. And that is because we don't identify with Christ. We identify with an image of Christ of which we have created. Look at Acts chapter 11. Verse 27. And these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which, was, uh, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now stop. Prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. How many of them? We don't know. But it's more than one. And we get one by name. Agabus. Great. Here's a question. Who's Agabus? What was his training? What seminary did he attend? What qualifications did he have to be a prophet? We don't know. Was there anything special about him? Probably not. Verse 29, then disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. They, uh, this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So you see what's going on. There's going to be a famine. They begin to prepare. They have a prophet who said there is going to be a famine in the land, a verified prophet, not some dude that just says stuff on the internet. And so they began to prepare as a result of that and started sending things. In other words, their heart was moved by the word of the Lord. Did the prophets still speak? Yeah, they did. Did that change? No, it hasn't changed. Are there people who call themselves prophets and aren't prophets? Absolutely. Was there then? Yes. What qualification did Agabus have? I don't know either. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now in the church that was in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manin, uh, Manian, and who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Do you notice it just uh, lumped Saul in that whole prophets and teachers? Great. Question. What qualification do they have? We don't know. What was their education? We don't know. Are you guys picking up on this? 
You see, what was happening here, as a result of the gospel going forth and the accompanying signs that were following, men who were full of the Holy Spirit began to rise up and obey the commandments of Jesus. Just go into all the world and make disciples. They didn't go in there and ask questions, say, okay, maybe they're ready for it, maybe they're not. They just went and preached it. And when they were sick, they healed them. And when they were demon-possessed, they cast them out. And even when they were dead, they raised them up. And what do we do? We come to church every Sunday. We read our Bibles and we pray. Look at Acts chapter 15, verse 30. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also. Did you realize they were prophets? Exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they went and sent back their greetings to the brethren and the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Who was all teaching and preaching? Not just Paul and Barnabas. There were many people that were doing it. Good. What qualifications do they have? What education do they have? We don't even know what their names were. Because it doesn't matter. Because everybody who became a disciple of Christ began to make disciples of Christ. Judas and Silas, they were prophets. Great. What education do they have? What is their background? You guys getting this? These are everyday people living their lives for the Lord. We created seminaries. Jesus didn't. What did he do? What was his seminary? I want you to wait you're endued with power from on high. That was their training. They spent three years. They were told to teach everything that he had commanded, including the last thing we said. This is where we're missing it. This is where we've been lied to. It's we're waiting on somebody gifted to step up. But what if everything we need has been provided for us? Look at Acts chapter 21. Verse 7. And when he had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Oh, we've heard that name before, haven't we? Now he's got a title associated with him. What was he before? Deacon. What is he now? Evangelist. What is an evangelist? Oh, that's simple. It's somebody who goes and preaches the gospel and makes disciples. That's an evangelist. Who was one of the seven? That's how we know who he was. And stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now, what is a virgin daughter? It's a young daughter. Promiscuity was not a thing that was celebrated then like it is now. It really refers to their age. Good. What qualifications did they have? What seminary did Philip send them to? None. It didn't even say that he was a prophet. What happened? He made disciples of his children. And these girls prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. That's a name we recommend, right? I recognize. When he had come, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, I want you to picture this. Here's Agabus a second time, okay? He could have just said, Listen, Paul, when you get there, you're going to get arrested. What do you do? Take off your belt. I want to show you something. That's just weird. But if you ever meet a real prophet, I mean a legit, sometimes they're a little weird. Sometimes you're a little weird. But this is Philip. Who is Philip? One of the seven, full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts chapter 8. This is another example of Philip. We're almost done. Verse 26. 
Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and he went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge over all the treasury, who had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading of the Isaiah the prophet. Now I'm going to stop for a moment. Who told Philip to go? An angel of the Lord did. He said, I want you to go down there. What did he tell him to do? He didn't tell him to do anything. He said, go. Okay? So he was obedient. As he was there, an Ethiopian eunuch. Understand what a eunuch was. He was a servant of the queen in this case. He was a higher up, and they were somebody who was castrated to not be distracted in any way. So he was somebody who's high up. And he was sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah. And in verse 29, the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? Now stop. What qualifications does Philip have? What ability does he have to teach somebody else what the scriptures say? This was left at this time for the higher ups. There were no in-home Bible studies. This is not a practice that would have been a Jewish practice. Verse 31, and he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come and sit with him. This place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and, he, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. This is Isaiah uh, 52 and 53. Verse 34, so the youth answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water and a eunuch said, see here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now stop. There's a couple of things that often gets missed here. Number one, whose idea was it for him to get baptized? It wasn't Philip's. It was his. In other words, how did he know? Well, if you go back and you look, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So he was what we call a, a, essentially a converted Jew. He believed that Yahweh was the true God. He came to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. When you say worship, what would that mean? He brought a sacrifice. He was familiar with the customs. Remember what the customs were. Is that when you became a disciple of somebody, they would mikvah, they would baptize, and thus making a declaration to the world that they are now a follower of that teacher, that rabbi, whatever it was. He knew that. He had very likely been discipled by somebody else and baptized by that person. This is where this comes in. His declaration, I believe, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is the transformation that took place in his heart where he is now what we call born again. Verse 38, So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Zotus, and passing through, he preached in all the city till he came to Caesarea. Now, this is weird. The man goes into the water, would have done it on his own power. That's how they did that. How we do it is not how they did it. And when he came up, where's Philip? 
he's gone. He's in a town that is 35 miles west of Jerusalem. How has he been traveling? On foot. He didn't have an airplane. He didn't have a teleporter. He didn't have any of that kind of stuff. The Holy Spirit moved him. Now that's incredible. It's incredible. Imagine if that happens to you. Here you are serving the Lord, being obedient to what the Holy Spirit has said. And you're, you're just doing your thing. And then you wake up and you're in England. We'd all be sitting around like, whoa. What on earth just happened? And we'd probably go sightseeing and do a few other things. But what did he do? And passing through, he preached in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. You see, the thing that I'm wanting you guys to understand is the identity crisis in the church is one of which that we do not follow Christ's commands. We don't follow the Jesus of the Bible. Make a million excuses of why we can't or shouldn't. We respond in the same way that the world responds. When there's fear over the economy, over sickness, over war, we respond in kind. But should we? No. And then we sit around and we believe that passage which says go into all the world and make disciples. And we're just waiting for somebody to do that who is called and gifted and able. But what was unique about these guys? And we could go more, guys. I wanted you to get to go home today. We could do more, but we stopped. Why? Because we don't need to. These are average, everyday guys. When we read about Peter and Paul, we're thinking, oh my goodness, what incredible men these were. There was one of them that was educated. Only one. All the other guys were guys like you and I that just did their life and then Jesus picked them out of a crowd. And then those guys, because of their relationship with Christ, went and began to preach about this Christ and others believed and followed. And they were so persuaded and moved because they were taught everything that Jesus commanded that they didn't skip steps. And they didn't think, oh yeah, I'm born again, I don't have to go to hell. As if that was the only thing that Jesus died for. When you go back to the beginning, He created Adam and Eve in His image to do what? Tend the garden and keep it, and to expand it. Where did we get the idea That you and I, when we get born again, now we just go to church, now we just read our Bible, now we just pray, and that's all we've got to do. We can spend the rest of our time sitting at home watching Fox News, or playing video games, or going to the game, uh, you know, some football game all the time, or whatever. Where did we get that idea that our everyday life wasn't an opportunity for us to induce the Spirit of God in other people's lives? We got it from church. Because we're not fully persuaded. Can you imagine, guys? Like, if you were here on Easter, I mean, the Holy Spirit was moving. And, and there towards the end, as I, I began to, you know, I just began to pray out. And it was like, again, I told you guys this, the Lord shows me pictures and stuff. And I'm picturing them. And where they were in their heart when Jesus had died. Because they didn't believe what he said. And so, because they didn't believe what he said, they didn't do what he said. And they were just sitting around and like, I don't know what we're going to do now. There's two guys walking to Emmaus and they're like, we thought he was the guy. He's not the guy. And then all of a sudden, reports come. They're like, no, I just, I just, I saw him. I was at the grave and he talked to me. 
And you're like, no. No, 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 no. That can't be. And then they see it for themselves. How could they stay quiet? Because you think about this, and this is where our pride comes in, and that was what happened with Peter. As he's questioned at the cross, he's like, aren't you one of his disciples? No, 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 not me. You got me mixed up with that other guy. Because he didn't want to be associated. Because they were losing. Their Messiah is getting killed right now. They're losing. We don't like to lose. We hate losing. But he's standing there and he's like, no, that's not the guy. I'm not, I, that's not me. I'm not him. And then he finds out he's alive. Could you imagine if that was you? You'd be like, I'm so sorry I denied you. I'm so sorry I, I didn't stand for you. And Jesus just looks at him and was like, don't worry about it. It work for you to do. How could you stay quiet if you had been there? How could you not every moment of every day live your life and speak the words of what Jesus had said? I'm like, you don't understand. He was dead, but he came back. I saw it. I was there. You could not help yourself. What happened to us? We don't live like that. We're not moved with compassion. We think carnally. And what I'm trying to get you to understand is that God is wanting to raise up His people to live like they lived, to do what they did, to not just go through life The purpose of that covenant was not simply escape from hell, but is to be his imager. And just think about this. If you are, and it was just you, you are Christ on this earth, what does the world think about him? I don't even want to think about that. I go back in times of all the years I I messed up, I failed, I didn't take an opportunity, I skipped it, I I didn't like something, I didn't like someone. You know how hard it is to minister to somebody you don't like? Because you're sitting there thinking like, you don't deserve my Jesus. Reality is, neither do I. And here we are. We make a million excuses of why we can't. But what would happen if we didn't? What would happen if we just said, you know what, I'm going to take this word. And I'm going to devote my life to the study of what God has said and what He promised and what He expects from me. And if He said it, then I'm going to do it. And He said to go and make disciples. And I'm going to go and I'm going to make disciples. And I'm going to get out of my comfort zone. And I'm going to go talk to somebody. And I'm going to meet somebody. And I'm going to pour into somebody's life. And they don't even have to like me. I don't care. I'm no longer concerned with that. I'm no longer going to make excuses for the things I can or cannot do. But I'm going to rise up to what Christ has commanded us. To go and teach them all the things that he has commanded. You and I have zero excuse. We have no excuse. There is nothing stopping us from doing. We live in the greatest land in the world that the history has ever seen. When no country has ever had the freedoms that we have. And we are like spoiled brats where we take it for granted. And we get more in an uproar about political things than the things that are coming against God. We have lost our way. But God is trying to raise up people. 
I'm seeing a movement around the country of young people who are rising up and getting a hold of the teachings of Christ. That are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And they are young and they're ambitious and they're excited and they ain't got all the answers. Do you know what they got? Zeal. We've lost our way. We've gotten so comfortable in our world that we no longer care about those that are dying around us. All we're sitting back is waiting for the Jesus to return. When's the rapture? Let's get out of here. We need to repent for that. We need to repent for the things and we have come against individuals and people. We need to repent. And we need to repent for being lazy. And what I'm telling you is Jesus is preparing to move there is going to be a movement of the Holy Spirit, unlike the likes many of us have seen, and some of us have lived through some pretty powerful moves. And I don't know when that's going to happen. I'm telling you, it is going to happen. I can't tell you the place where it's going to happen, but I pray to God it's right here. But we don't get that by attending church and reading our Bibles and praying. Not alone. Those aren't bad things. Don't misunderstand me. We get that by being full of the Holy Spirit and obeying the things which He has commanded. You see, when I say we've been lied to, we have been lied to in the fact that we have left this as a sidebar thing. And we've said that, you know what, we agree on this, and we agree on this, and you know, that's good enough. Jesus told them to wait. Jesus did nothing until the Holy Spirit came upon him. There wasn't a miracle performed. Why did we allow this to be a side issue? And I'm guilty of it too, guys. I'm not... For too long. For too long. As we saw that when the Spirit of God was poured out upon people, there were signs and wonders that followed them. The Holy Spirit didn't force Himself upon anybody. It was whoever wanted it. There's no special anointing that you have to, to in, inject that into somebody, so to speak. There's nothing. It's do I want it? The moment the Ethiopian eunuch said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, he was born again. We don't know what happened to him after that. We speculate. You realize at the moment that Philip said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, he was born again. When was he baptized with the Holy Spirit? We don't know. It doesn't say. You guys see what I'm saying? You see, there's an expectation with us that we have failed miserably. We are failing our God. We're failing the one who gave his life for us. But that doesn't have to be anymore. You see, what we need to do is we need to stand up and we need to ask the Lord to pour his spirit out upon us, to be used by him. No more games. No more excuses. I have seen more in the last four months, supernatural things. And I don't go, you guys don't hear me tell a lot of stories of things that go on day in and day out and st in this area, stuff like that. Because I'm, we've constantly got stuff going on, okay? But I'm telling you, I have seen more things in the last four months than I have seen in a long time. Good and bad. There's supernatural movement that's happening. And it is time for us to take our rightful place. We're no longer going to be devoured. We're no longer going to be quiet. 
We're no longer going to fear the world. We're no longer going to fear death. We are no longer going to succumb to the standards that the church has set in this country because the church doesn't get to set the standards. Jesus does. So I'm going to ask everybody who wants to stand up. If you want the Holy Spirit to fall on you like you saw there, I don't care if you've done this before or not, but if you want the Holy Spirit to come upon you, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, then we're going to stand up. And we're going to lift up our hands and we're going to thank Him. Because there is nothing special about me or anybody else. It is about Him. It's about His promise. And what we have to do is simply be obedient. So church, let's do this. Let's rise up. Let's just lift up our hands to Him and let's close our eyes. And all you have to do is say, Lord, pour your Spirit out upon me. Father, I thank you for a body of believers that are ready to step up. That they are ready to be used by you. That they are ready to become obedient to your commandments. And with that, we know that you're pouring your Spirit out on us right now. Lord, everybody who is standing with their hands raised is just crying out to you and thanking you that the promise of the Father is now going to be poured out upon them and I thank you that it's happening right now. That we can be used by you. Oh, thank you, Jesus. We don't have to feel anything, church. This is obedience to Him. Because now we're being equipped. And now we're being prepared. It's the Spirit of God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you, Lord God. If anybody wants hands laid upon them, I just ask you to come up here. We can do this corporately. We can do it through the laying on of hands. And Jim, I would ask if you would come up. My man Jim here, when he lays hands on people, things happen, especially with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You see, we all have a desire, but sometimes we don't have the willpower to walk through it. Jim, if you would pray for people, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and anybody else who wants this, we're going to take just a minute to do it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Pour your Spirit out upon us, Lord. Pour your Spirit out upon us, Lord. Pour your Spirit out upon us, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are obedient to your word. We thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Welcome. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Anybody else? Okay, we'll we'll do that. Yep. We'll pray for you, Cindy. Anybody else want prayer? Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Don't be shy. Don't miss out. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Yep. Yep. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Anybody else? Don't be shy. You can come on up. This is your opportunity. Thank you, Lord Jesus. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Anybody else? We're about done, but this is important. You see, the reason I had Jim come up is Jim, for whatever reason, has always been a conduit when it comes to the baptism in the Holy Spirit. When he lays hands on people, things begin to move. And we want to utilize that gift. Anybody can do it. Don't misunderstand me. And Jim will tell you, what's special about Jim? Nothing. What training has Jim had? Not much. He's obedient to the Word. He's obedient to the Lord. So I can do it, and Jim can do it, and you can do it. But it's about being obedient. And so with that, we have to be aware of the expectations that God has for us. We've got to stop playing church. We have got to start being obedient. When you hear of somebody sick, you should be there praying for them. I have said this before. The thing I've always loved about this place uh, than any other place I've been is somebody walks in and says, oh, I'm not feeling very good. There'll be four people praying for them right there. They don't sit around and wait for an altar call. They just take care of it. But we should do that every day in our lives. You see, the Holy Spirit does not just move in this room. He moves in the temple, which is you and I. We take Him with us. I'm telling you guys, where we're going is probably one of the most important series that I've ever taught through. And I'm going to explain some things of what we've been doing the last few years and where we're going now, as the Lord has, has directed me, because the time is now. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that God has moved in a group of individuals who's got a heart for the Lord, who's ready to be used by Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you are faithful to us even when we are not faithful to you. And so, Lord, we repent of those things that have kept us back and the excuses we've made. Perhaps we've come against a brother or sister. We've allowed the enemy to intrude into our minds and let us think negatively about somebody or, or speak badly about somebody. Lord, we repent of all of that. But now we rise up, that we are ready to be used by you. And I thank you, Lord that you don't look for qualified people. You look for obedient people. And I thank you, Father, that there's not a person in this room that's not ready to be obedient to you. And so, Father, we give you the glory. And I thank you for all the things that you're doing and continuing to do. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out for the kingdom. We'll see you next week.